Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast that brings scholarly expertise to bear on timely international issues. Today, we present an interview of David Gill, Consul General of the Federal Republic of Germany by John Torpy, Director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. It was held in person at the Graduate Center, CUNY, on April 19, 2023, and organized by the European Union Study Center, a project of the Ralph Bunch Institute. Okay, thank you all for coming. Good evening. My name is John Torpy. I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies and the European Union Studies Center, which is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute. Uh, and we're thrilled to present this year's Otto and Fran Walter uh, Memorial Lecture. Otto Walter was a longtime friend and donor to the European Union Studies Center, whose generous bequest makes possible this important annual event. Though his life's plans were destroyed by Nazi hatred, his life's work was to build peace. He would be devastated that war has again broken out in Europe, uh, and yet he would be thrilled that the country of his birth and the country of his adoption are this time working together to confront hatred. We're also grateful to the DAAD Alumni Association of the United States for their co-sponsorship of this event. Let me now introduce our guest of honor, whom we're very happy to have. David Gill has been Consul General in New York since 2017, and before that he served as State Secretary and Chief of Staff to German President Joachim Gauck. Uh, however, Consul General Gill has had a far from conventional political career, although a not untypical East German biography, one might say. Uh, he grew up in Herrnhut, Saxony, in the former East Germany, and was denied a higher education by the communist regime for political reasons. Instead, he trained and worked as a plumber, comes in handy, I'm sure, uh, before pursuing theological studies in the Protestant church in Berlin, Brandenburg. In 1990, he initially was the chairman of the Normannenstrasse Citizens Committee, which oversaw the dissolution of the Ministry of State Security of the Staatssicherheit um, at the Stasi headquarters, and he served as the secretary of the Special Committee of the East German Parliament for the dissolution of the Stasi. After reunification, he became spokesman and head of the research division of the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi Files and studied law in Berlin and Philadelphia. Now that's unusual. Uh, he has held positions in the Federal Ministry of the Interior at the Commissioner for Data Protection and Freedom of Information, and he's also served as the Deputy Representative of the Council of the Protestant Church in Germany to the Federal Republic of Germany and the European Union. So, so. Herr Gill, 
thanks very much for coming. It was really great to have you, and uh, for reasons that will become clear later in the evening, uh, it's probably the last time we're going to have him here. So we're happy he's here, but sad that he's going. So let's begin with the Ukraine war, uh, which has, of course, unsettled Europe and the world uh, with the largest land war in Europe in the post-1945 period. The war has led German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, as I'm sure most of you know, to announce a so-called Zeitenwende, that is a major transformation in Germany's military posture compared to its previous post-World War II stance. And I wonder if you could just explain for us what this somewhat strange word Zeitenwende really means. I can try, certainly. Um, but before, I just want to say um, how happy I am to be back at the Graduate Center of, the, of CUNY. Um, it was probably in my second or third month that I served as Consul General here that you invited me to come here, and we had a great morning and lunch with the then director or president. I don't know what the title is. And I was very impressed by what's going on in this graduate center with all the different um, studies and these scientists who work here and the scholars who work together. And so I'm really happy to be back and to talk about what's going on in Europe and Germany and the world. Well, Zeitenwende is a very German word, obviously. And if you want to translate it, then you would probably use the term turning point, um, which was um, used by Olaf Scholz when he described something what really changed not only Europe, but the whole world, and not only the Ukraine, but Europe and the whole world, and also Germany. So it was basically an end of an era. I don't have to explain to you uh, what happened then. It was for the first time um, in Europe since the Second World War that a full-fetched war broke out. Um, an independent, democratic country was invaded by its neighbor, and the shock was... Um, great everywhere. You remember probably the day when it happened. And also what, in, what happened in Berlin afterwards was pretty dramatic. Even, even the setting was dramatic. The beginning of the war was uh, Thursday, February the 24th. And for the first time in more than 70 years of the existence of the Federal Republic of Germany, the parliament came together on a Sunday for a working session because the chancellor wanted to give a declaration about what's uh, now to do, what's on state, stake now uh, for Germany in this situation. And he gave a speech with, which um, described a um, dramatic change in many ways. First of all, uh, he pledged a special fund of 100 billion euros to modernize the German military. And that was a big, big shift. In Germany, after the war, 
the military existed, but nobody really, um, no, not nobody, that's wrong, but it was not um, um, an instrument what German people saw as an instrument in, uh, for politics. It was the first time that in the late 90s, the Bundeswehr, the German military, served in peacekeeping missions on the Balkan. This was a big, big step. But that we would um, put 100 billion euros uh, in a modernization um, um, program for our military, that was something unthinkable even two weeks before. And the reason for this was that everybody suddenly understood there is a danger for our way of life, for our country, for democracy, for freedom, for Europe. And so um, he was applauded for that in a very big way, even though it was hard, particularly for the left parties, to follow this way. But we learned a lot over the last year, over the last 14 months now, that long the, the, the war is going on. So this was this program. A second major step and change was also in how we export weapons now. It was for good reason that Germany uh, was very reluctant to export weapons in regions of crisis and war. Actually, in our, uh, it was legally not allowed to do so. And um, one and a half years ago, there wouldn't have been a possibility to send weapons to Ukraine in the situation where it is now. So we changed our approach uh, uh, in this way also, and in a dramatic way. And since um, the beginning of the war, uh, also the kind of weapons which were delivered changed over the uh, over the time we were. We started with, with uh, small uh, deliveries, with cars, with armored cars, uh, and now we, are, uh, we deliver even battle tanks, what we wouldn't have done in the beginning. It's also a development and understanding how necessary the support for uh, Ukraine, Ukraine and the military means is. But there's more of a turning point also. A point also. We realized um, in Germany that a dependence as we, a dependency as we uh, had until the beginning of the war from Russia and energy questions uh, can't work anymore. And we learned it um, the hard way, I have to say. Um, before the war, uh, more than 50% of the oil used in, East, in Germany was imported from Russia. 55% uh, of the natural gas was imported uh, from Russia. And uh, it is amazing how the government, together, together with the economy and the businesses in Germany, managed to change this dependency. So today, Germany uh, don't, doesn't import any oil, any gas from Russia, and the economy uh, is still running. So that's a major, major, major shift um, and uh, achievement what was possible. And um, 
that's not only um, a change in politics and a change in the political discussion, that's also a change all over the approach to military, the approach to support Ukrainians, the openness to uh, receive um, refugees, one million Ukrainian refugees in Germany. That's not just uh, discussed in political circles. That's really uh, embraced by the great majority of, of the Germans. Well, that was the next question I wanted to ask you. I mean, Schultz, Chancellor Schultz was rather hesitant about sending those tanks until the United States agreed that, that they were going to do that first. And then he had, I think, the cover he thought he needed in order to make that announcement. Uh, and then, you know, recently in the in the Ostermärsche, the, the Easter peace marches, you know, one saw a continued kind of lack of enthusiasm for this kind of departure from the previous German posture. And I wonder, I mean, you say that, you know, the decision or this Zeitenwende has been embraced, but I wonder, you know, is that entirely the case? Well, I said there was a good reason that Germany was reluctant for a long, long time uh, to uh, deliver weapons and military machinery in uh, regions of crisis. Um, and that's why it took time to reach the level of support, military support, we are able and willing uh, uh, to, delivery, uh, to deliver to Ukraine. And of course, that's not different here in the United States. Politicians always have also to think about what does it mean for our country when we support Ukraine. Do we become part of uh, uh, a party of, of this, this, this war? How do we endanger our own position towards Russia, not economically, but militarily? Um, do we still have enough uh, military means to defend ourselves? So we can't just give all the uh, tanks and everything to the Ukrainians, and in the end, uh, Germany is not able to defend itself. So that's a question you have to consider when you decide what can we, uh, how can we help the, the, the Ukrainians militarily. So, but what the support of this um, politics, um, um, so there's a, there's a broad support of, of this politics. I, I looked it up, the, the numbers. Um, regarding the military aid Germany uh, gives to Ukraine, 47%, almost half of the Germans say this kind of um, um, support is appropriate. But even... 16%, almost a fifth um, of the Germans say, it's not enough, we should do more. And way less than a third of the Germans said, we should be more reluctant, we should uh, do more in this, in, 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 in this field of mili military support. So there is still um, a great support in the German uh, public, um, also in this difficult question, how can we uh, uh, support Ukraine uh, 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 militarily. So it sounds as though Schultz got the support that he and of course you, But in in a yeah, and pro maybe he convinced people, and they see what's going on. And you always have to consider when you think about how people 
um, think about the war, between Germany and Ukraine, there's only Poland. Kiev is as far from Berlin as Chicago is from New York. So it does mean something for your, uh, your life. And um, it is a threat, or it is at least close to your, to your own, own home. And in addition, one million refugees from, from Ukraine remind the Germans that there is a terrible, cruel uh, war uh, there, and uh, they can't live at home, mostly women with their children. The fathers are fighting, or the brothers. And um, so uh, this does something to the people and how they see that it is not some far war. Uh, uh, we have nothing to do with. It's much closer, and we can make a difference when we support uh, our Ukrainian friends. Well, this sort of leads into the next question I wanted to ask you, which has to do with developments in Germany uh, since basically 1989. I first got to Germany in 1981, uh, shortly before uh, General Jaruzelski in Poland you know, announced martial law. And I looked at the map, and I thought about, you know, that's as far from where I grew up as New York City, roughly. I mean, it was very close. Suddenly, this naive American kid was in the middle of Central Europe, and it was much more real. But in any case, I mean, uh, we talked about your East German roots, and, uh, you know, I ended up writing a dissertation about this, these developments. Um, but the question basically is, you know, there had been those who said in 1989 that, um, you know, it would take a generation, basically, for East and West Germany to grow together. And, you know, das was zusammen gehört, wächst zusammen, and those sorts of things. Um, and it's been a difficult process. And I mean, I wonder what you would say about where that process stands now. Well, um, I want to start. Uh, you talked about uh, martial law of um, Jaruzelski. I still remember very well uh, when it was introduced. I was, I think, it was second of Advent in 1981. I was 15 years old, and I remember when I heard it in the in the radio. And it was the same uh, weekend when uh, Helmut Schmidt, uh, the Chancellor of West Germany, visited East 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 Germany. So. There was a lot of things going on. And I grew up in a little town in Saxony, maybe 10 kilometers away from the Polish border. And until 1981, there were two countries we could just travel without any restrictions. Um, and this was Poland and Czechoslovakia. Not Russia, not Yugoslavia, nothing like this. Poland and Czechoslovakia. And after the martial law was uh, martial law was introduced, this border was also closed. So, um, well, there is much achieved in East Germany and in the United Germany. Uh, incredible things were made possible. Um, if you look at the cities and towns in East Germany, the infrastructure. Uh, the wages, the, um, the 
material security of the people, social security, etc., etc., and the possibilities and opportunities for the people, much is achieved. And uh, much with a great support from the West, the richer part, four-fifths of the country, could, I wouldn't say easily support the, the, the smaller, the one-fifths of the country, but that was a great benefit uh, for East Germany and the other Eastern European countries, um, which you could compare uh, before the fall of the wall, uh, had in, met, met, so in, in, in this way a much harder way uh, than East Germany. On the other hand, it was a dramatic change. It was a Zeitenwende. If you want uh, more for the people in East Germany than in West Germany, the West Germans, they could live their life basically as they did before, and uh, there were even more opportunities. Um, suddenly there were, um, I don't know how many universities in East Germany we had, but maybe 15, maybe 20, maybe 25, and for West German scholars and teachers, it was also an opportunity to go there, because in East Germany, um, the people lacked education because either they were they were excluded from higher education, or in certain fields like history, law, political science, those were not the people we wanted to have in our uh, in our universities anymore. There was a need also for uh, new scholars, new, new teachers, new professors. And the East Germans also lacked um, resources. I mean, there was, um, we didn't starve. Uh, it was, we, we had a decent life, but there were resources, for instance, to buy property, to renovate buildings, etc. They were not there. And so many from the West came and helped, but also owned and now own. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the beautiful houses which we uh, had renovated in the last 30 years. So what I want to say, there is still a difference in some ways, and there is a difference um, in some fields and in some parts of the society which is even perpetuated over the years because the chances at the starting point of reunification were so different. And in East Germany also um, the first years were pretty hard for the average uh, people who lost their jobs. So the whole economy broke down. Um, it was very clear the East German uh, economy was not uh, compatible in any way to, to the West. The West was easily able to um, serve the East. So no East German wanted to buy East German cars anymore. No East German wanted to have the products they never liked. Um, they wanted to have what, what, what they could buy from the West. So that all this, uh, uh, contributed to a, um, yeah, a, a, a devastating um, um, collapse of the economy which made millions um, unemployed. And 
younger people, my generation, was able to go to West Germany to work. So when I had my class reunions, 80% um, for a while came from Bavaria or, or Baden-Württemberg or uh, Hamburg because there were the jobs. And those who were not mobile, the older one, even when you were 40 and had a family, you, you were left behind and realized that your chance, at least for a period of five to ten years, are much smaller. So, we say it's a process. The younger generation is no longer uh, so affected uh, by this, but there are still differences. Right. I mean, the pre-1989 past is now so far back for younger people that it's just, you know, ancient history, so to speak. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, have the two populations, insofar as they're two, uh, you know, grown to have the same sort of consciousness of the country that they live in? I mean, I was struck by the fact that in the East, the opposition to German involvement in the war and to the war in some ways itself is stronger. So there are still regional differences in people's outlooks about the world. So I wonder if you could comment on that. There is a stronger uh, opposition against this military support of Ukraine, um, or maybe even a stronger support of Russia. It's not so much about, they don't think so much about Ukraine, but they are more, um, yeah, it, it resonates more what Putin always said, I, I, I had to do this for my self-defense because if I wouldn't uh, march into Ukraine, then the NATO, NATO would, would march into Russia, which is nonsense, but uh, it resonates at least in a certain percentage of, of the population. But it's by far not the majority, and it's, it's uh, maybe some percentage more than in the West, but I wouldn't say that's, uh, that's an East German phenomenon and only there. You have also conspiracy uh, uh, theorists in the West, and interestingly, all the leaders of the right-wing AFD in East Germany, well, almost all of them come from the West, but uh, they find more followers in the East um, for several reasons. It might be also um, the anti-Americanism, which exists also in the West, but for other reasons. But uh, if you had learned for uh, decades in your youth and young adulthood um, that uh, America is the enemy and the imperialistic um, country which uh, wants to have influence all over the world, uh, then it might be still in your head. And um, so, but it's not, not that the East is against the support of Ukraine or um, um, thinks that Russia is, uh, does the right thing. I, I didn't mean to suggest that. I hope that was clear. But um, so uh, we were talking uh, beforehand about how long you've been here, and you corrected me that it's six years, not seven. But nonetheless, you've been here through six rather eventful years. And I'm now going to ask you to be forthcoming about your experience of American life during the previous administration and, you know, 
there were a lot of questions raised about the relationship between our administration and, for example, NATO, uh, and with our European partners more generally, and lots of questions raised about you know, the reliability of the United States as a partner. You're part of the dip diplomatic structure of Germany. You know, what would you say about that? How is that perceived? Has the, you know, the upset kind of been overcome in the meantime and the heal, the wound healed insofar as there's a wound? I mean, how would you describe that? Well, when I came here in 2017, um, I experienced a country in two minds. Um, enthusiasm on the one hand, shock at the other hand, on the other hand. And uh, this was interesting to see, not so much in New York. New York is different than other parts of, of, of the country. Um, but yes, uh, it was interesting and it was not easy also for us as diplomats to deal with a new situation we hadn't experienced before. That suddenly the close relationship and the transatlantic relationship was questioned or at, le questioned, or at least not considered um, particularly necessary anymore. My colleagues in Washington experienced this much more than we, do, we did here in New York, of course, because they the, the, with the national bilater bilateral uh, level, and it was something they never had experienced before, that they didn't have partners in the departments, in the State Department, either uh, there were new uh, appointees who were not interested in the transatlantic relationship, or there were no no appointees in many uh, posts, and they they didn't know uh, with whom to talk to. And of course, the signals the president of this country sent uh, during his first years to the to the allies were not helpful either. You remember the G7 uh, summit in Canada, where he. Um, President Trump um, left early to meet um, the North Korean leader. That was the message was that is more important in the moment than to 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 come together with my uh, my I, yeah natural allies if you want. Yeah. And so and how to deal with this? This was really difficult. And. Um, if you ask reliable partners, yes, I'm convinced the Americans are reliable partners, but we also have to learn that this America is a very colorful country, and we can't pick our partners in this country, and we have to really um, um, try to build a network in all parts of the society and also in all parts of the political landscape. And that's a teaching of, of uh, this time. We have to inv invest and um, we can't take the transatlantic and German-American relationship for granted. We have to work for that. And we sometimes explain to ourselves but also to our American partners why this um, relationship is so important. And in this way, the war in Ukraine even helps. 
I think many, many people realized, yes, we are natural partners, and yes, we share uh, a foundation of our society, might we think in certain fields of politics very differently, but we have a foundation of democracy, the rule of law, freedom, which um, we can't take for granted, not here, not there, and that's why we have to stand together. And uh, this is, I really would say, a, a positive outcome of the last 14 months, not only in politics, but also in a society, at least when I talk about Germany, that people realize, yes, that is something what is worth to fight uh, for, and we have to defend that. Well, that's interesting what you say about, you know, connecting with all parts of the country. And it occurs to me that, you know, it's a, a question that I have for, you know, what you do in your job. I mean, you're based in New York, but there's a big wide country out there, most of it far west of New York. Um, and I wonder, you know, have you had a chance to travel around the country and get a sense of what life is like elsewhere or not really? I mean, you, you don't have to travel so far to, to see how different this country is. When you go 70 miles west to Delaware uh, Water Gap and this region and look how people live there and what their problems are, or um, Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. So my district here is New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, which is a small part uh, of the U.S., but compared to Germany, is two-thirds of the of the uh, of Germany and uh, half of the population of Germany. So, um, and yes, this country uh, is, and that's why I like this country also much. Uh, also, so much, it's such a colorful and diverse country. Not only uh, if you look at the people, but also the landscape, the the, the uh, yeah, the mentality, etc. And of course, I didn't stay uh, in my district alone. No, no. Uh, we, with my family, we traveled to the west. We just came back two weeks ago from the Carolinas and Tennessee. And it's, it's wonderful to see this diversity and also to see the problems and that you can have different approaches um, of certain fields of politics, of um, living standards, of convictions when you live in Arizona or in New York. Even when you talk about gun law, yeah, when you travel travel in these wide fields, you can understand that there a gun plays a different role than here in New York. Um, what is the teaching out of it and what should be the politics? That's another, another question. But you can understand that people in Arizona or in the Death Valley think differently about life and what's necessary in life than people in New York City. And um, yeah, it's great. Yes. Well, I think you're lucky, of course, to have had that opportunity. Um, but I'm sort of curious, you know, as you are reaching the end of your tenure here in, in New York, you know, what will you remember most? What will you happily leave in the rearview mirror? Uh, I mean, you know, what, what stays with you and what would you just as soon not necessarily have to do anymore? So one, one thing really is uh, this great diversity of this country and its people that I 
uh, will miss. My wife Sheila is, is American, and when we met 30 years ago, uh, she used to live in, in New York. She's sitting there, if you ask, with my wife. <laughs> and when she came to Berlin, I remember that, when she came to Berlin in 95, Berlin changed uh, over the years also, but she was shocked how white and uh, just uniform uh, Miss, uh, Berlin and Germany is compared with New York City. So that's wonderful. I also uh, like the openness in this country. And um, yes, that's, that's something I, I, I really will miss. Um, I have to say what I uh, won't miss, or that's the wrong, wrong um, phrase, and I hope it will change, but um, for instance, this mass shooting of the last weeks, and that's something what I can't, can't um, understand. It's also a question of the guns in this country, um, and uh, I don't know how and if the country is able to, to find a way out of this, um, and I hope so. Um, that is something what really, really concerns me, uh, particularly now in the last, last days when you every day another case. And what does it make with a country? I'm, yeah, I'm also worried. Well, it reminds me of the, uh, when I was doing the research for my this dissertation I told you about. Um, I was interviewing a woman named Ulrika Poppe, whose, Good name, friend of mine. whose name you will recognize. Uh, and she was one of the most courageous opponents, I would say, of the East German regime. A relatively petite woman, but a sort of fireplug, kind of a tough character in a good way, um, but she told me she, she had been invited to a conference in Detroit and she was afraid to go because all she ever heard about the United States was you know, mass shootings. Okay, thank you all for coming. Uh, I just want to say uh, thanks so much to Consul General David Gill for taking time out of his busy schedule, and I know it's a busy schedule, for joining us this evening and the audience here at the Graduate Center and via Zoom for taking part in the 2023 Otto and Fran Walter Memorial Lecture. A video of this event will be posted to the Graduate Center's YouTube channel, and the audio will be uploaded as an episode of the Ralph Bunch Institute's podcast, which is called International Horizons, and can be found wherever fine podcasts can be found. <laughs> Spotify, I've forgotten exactly, but in any case, I'm sure you'll find it. So thank you all for coming, and please thank Devin Gould. That's it for today's episode. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We want to thank Mary Sobner, Assistant Director of the EU Study Center, as well as Karen Sander and the team at the Graduate Center Public Programs for their assistance in organizing this event, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as a theme music for the show. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.